Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and it's a beautiful Sunday here in Brooklyn, and I'm joined in the station with an amazing, incredible author. Um, her latest book is called Far- Rancher, Farmer, Fisherman, and now it's really easy to forget that you know farmers, which make up only about 1% of the population in this nation, they also manage about two-thirds of the land in our nation. Um, and Miriam, the author of this wonderful book, has decided to explore many um, profiles, several different ranchers, farmers, and fishermen um, to to get a sense of who they are. And um, really happy to have you on the station. Thanks so much for joining us, Miriam. Thanks so much for having me. So um, you've been a journalist for a while. You've written the New York Times bestseller, Earth, the sequel. And you're also a member of the, you work at the Environmental Defense Fund. did you have any farming in your background or in your family? When I was a kid, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I sort of adopted a farm family that farms in Winters, which is due west of Davis, mm-hmm. just as you're heading up into the hills that lead into the Napa Valley. And um, their name is Rominger. They, uh, Rich Rominger has been a real leading figure in sustainable farming. He was the Secretary of Agriculture in the first Jerry Brown administration and deputy secretary in the Clinton administration. And from the time I was a little girl, they were already, they were so far ahead of their time that he's mm-hmm. a, he himself is a fourth generation farmer. His kids have taken over the farm and they were already thinking about this very long view about the land and how you had to protect the land. And wow. so they were really my first teachers and I spent as much time as I could on their farm. I helped harvest melons and and mm. plums and apricots and, you know, rode around in the combine when they were cutting barley. And uh, they, they were really the best times of my life. Wow. So that sounds pretty formative. Um, and this book really sort of debunks a lot of, uh, I guess, common perceptions that we have about farmers, that they're often at odds with environmental groups, that, you know, for better or for worse, um, some of their some of the practices of industrial scale farming, for example, are damaging. And um, you really uncover, um, you know, how, uh, you know, the, 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 some of the, even at an industrial scale, um, you can also help heal the ecosystems that you're working with. So that's, that's a really fascinating, you know, switch. And I wonder um, how you decided to talk about this. Pro- like, did you see around you too much criticism around farmers or what inspired you to write this? Um, well, Environmental Defense Fund had a lot to do with it because we have we have a habit of partnering with people who are very large scale producers, mm-hmm. with feeling you know believing that you have to move the biggest levers in the world if you're actually going to change ah, the world, yes. and that you can't have sustainable food be a sort of niche thing. It has to be 
This heartland large-scale food production also mm -hmm. has to be sustainable. Um, and so I was able to actually, I had been hearing stories for the 12 years I've been at DDF, I've been hearing stories about these really remarkable innovators with you know, deep, the deep knowledge that comes from having worked the land for many generations and the deep sense of understanding of how dependent their livelihoods and communities and families were on the health of those natural resources. The farmer I, I focus on, Justin Knopf, is in central Kansas, mm -hmm. and you know his family has acute dust bowl memories. They know what happens to that soil if it's insufficiently protected. So he has, he has introduced no-till farming to his 4,500 acres in order to protect that soil above all else. Yeah, because it's, it's amazing. I mean, I, I think that... A lot of times when you think of industrial-scale farming, you're thinking of monoculture and um, you know, negative connotations that come along with it, maybe chemical pesticides and so forth. But his family's farm was really um, a great example of, of being really thoughtful. And uh, I'm curious how you came across your, your subjects that you profiled. Um, well, actually, all five of them were introduced to me by my colleagues at EDF who work mm -hmm. with them. Um, we... the the. The Cowboy in Montana, the book starts at the furthest most reaches. It's a trip down the Mississippi River, mm -hmm, and it, mm -hmm. it starts at the headwaters of the Missouri River, which is the longest tributary of the Mississippi. And that cowboy I actually found through a group called the Blackfoot Challenge, um, which is part... The Blackfoot Challenge is one of a number of consortia around the country that sort of defy the current state of politics at the moment. They're mm -hmm. consortia that of people who come together across all kinds of divides, all you know, deep political divides. They're deep red and, and deep blue people coming together, people who've often had historical struggle over issues like mm -hmm. timber and spotted owls and oil and gas. And yet they're still able to sort of do that fundamental work of democracy and work things out, talk mm -hmm. to each other respectfully and work out solutions that work for everyone. And so I actually found Dusty the Cowboy, through a group called the Blackfoot Challenge that's been sort of one of the leaders of this movement to bridge the divides between landowners and hunters and yeah. federal bureaucrats and, and environmental groups. And, um, and then uh, Justin and the Chapter 3 is about the CEO of a, of a barge company that navigates all of the Mississippi and its tributaries. Um, chapter four is about a sh an advocate for the refugee shrimping community in Louisiana, and then the book ends in the Gulf of Mexico with a commercial fisherman. And in every case, the stories actually, I, I sort of canvassed my colleagues, yeah. and they were the ones that okay. led me to them. Well, the, it's a fascinating story, and I love how you take us on a trip down the Mississippi and um, and I didn't realize it was the third largest river in the world. After I didn't the either, actually, and, and the Amazon. Yeah, it's yeah. It, I, I didn't either until I started working. I did not fully appreciate, begin to appreciate how important the Mississippi is to the history of the United States, to the current politics, to food production, to, mm -hmm. you know, most of our natural wealth is in that watershed. It drains almost half of the country. So it's, it's unbelievably critical, and we just all fly over it. <laughs> um, I really want to talk more about these wonderful profiles, but since we're on the rancher topic... Um, I have to ask uh, what your thoughts are on the, over the summer, we saw a little debacle in Oregon, with the standoff between the ranching community, and I was just, it just struck me that that was one of the most kind of, uh, you know, 
visible I've seen ranchers in the media um, in the last few. <laughs> yeah, and it's unfortunate because he is not, the Bundys are no. not representative okay. of Western ranchers. And, and, and Dusty, my, my cowboy, I call him, you know, we, we addressed it directly in the book because it's, it's deeply distressing to him that that's who mm-hmm. gets cast as the hero of ranchers. And he says very plainly, Dusty himself ha- does not have any public, any grazing leases on public okay. land. You know, Bundy was a, Cliven Bundy, the father, was a total outlier in refusing to pay the fees that were due. I mean, pr- the, the, the uh, cattlemen who graze their animals on public land pay about 10% of what it would cost you to graze them on private land. So they're getting an enormous deal. Oh, they're dear. on our shared land. And most of them, 99.9% of them are utterly responsible. They mm-hmm. totally appreciate the, you know, this public good that right. they're sharing in and they're utterly responsible. So the idea that, you know, this gun-toting, um, fed-fighting, even the, the take-back-the-land movement, as they call it, you know, that land, first of all, it, these were territories. Okay. These weren't colonies. Yeah. These land, this land has belonged. It belonged to the Indians, and then it belonged <laughs> to the United States of right. America. It's never belonged <laughs> to anyone else. So there's no taking back yeah. something you never had. The, but the people in those states understand that, again, that land is rough land. It's oh, t- it okay. supports very yeah. little production from a human standpoint. So the federal government actually spends a lot of money to take care of that land. Mm. So if the states Shoot. were to take it on... That would become a huge financial burden for the states, and they would end up selling it all off, and it would become, it would get locked up. It would mean that none of us, none of, no, no American citizen, except the, the person that owned it, would, be, would have access to it. So the idea that this is a campaign for liberty or that this is a campaign on behalf of the cattlemen of America, it's just not. Yeah, These guys that's are. Too, that's really unfortunate that that really stood out. Yes, it is because these, you know, the extremists unfortunately often capture the limelight, mm-hmm. even if they don't speak for anybody, but a very, very few. Right, and I love that you explore not just um, you know a shrimp um, fishery, but also a uh, fish fishery um, in exploring the families. Um, you also say that you know. When we talk about how to feed a growing world population, that seafood is going to play a, a much more crucial part because, you know, protein per, per protein, it's uh, much more efficient than land-based proteins, and we're not sort of taking advantage of that as much as we could. Yeah, we really have hammered our fisheries to near depletion. I mean, the, the red snapper fishery in the Gulf, which is the one I focus on, had been fished down to just 4% of its historic levels. So we were on the way to fishing it basically to nothing. And the problem was that most of our fisheries are managed by the federal government, and the problem was really wrong-headed management that that basically consisted of trying to to hog-tie the fishermen and then hope they didn't catch very many (laughs) fish. You would, you know, give them really, really short seasons or... Just squeezes everybody. Exactly. They just race like crazy. They Mm -hmm. endanger themselves. They damage habitat. They kill millions of fish that they don't want. So you waste a huge amount of fish. So this reform in policy that this fisherman helped lead, you know, there's more fish in the water and there's more fish to eat. And these these communities are much more stable. And the fishery is really on the rebound. So you actually can... You know, it sounds like you're having your cake and eating it, too, but in mm-hmm. a way you can. If you yeah. really take care of the ecosystem, it rewards you in return yeah. with more 
bounty. I just love how you really illuminate in these stories, you know, each one, but that one too, how, you know, the, the, the producers, let's call them, are really working hand in hand to lead the charge of the change. And this is their livelihood, of course. So Absolutely. You know, and they, they bring love, they bring deep knowledge. And yes, they are, they are absolutely in the driver's seat on mm-hmm. these changes. It's not just that they're sort of being manipulated by outsiders right. or something. They or are the ones chastised or something. Right. They're not being hammered into it. Yeah. Right. Um, you said that some are reluctant to be called environmentalists, quote unquote. But they embrace the term steward, or perhaps you... What, what is your take on the word steward? Um, mm-hmm. Well, for some of them, in particular, Justin Knopf, the farmer in Kansas, is a, he is a creationist Christian. A lot of what motivates him is his faith and this sense that there is a, you know, an obligation to take care of this gift that we have been given. Mm-hmm. And so the word steward, for some of them, has almost a biblical, it has mm-hmm. that kind of a connotation... Um, but it also, for like the, the CEO of this barge company, he really, you know, he has this great sense of civic responsibility. He has come from a long line of really important like mm. medical leaders and leaders in the ministry as well. And so for him, it's a sense of a, a kind of obligation, a social responsibility that comes with having privilege in the world. He cool. comes, And so... So it, it can have varying meanings, but it, it really is about accepting responsibility for the you know across time mm-hmm. and across space, across time for future generations, and across space for the people who who's uh, who are affected by your decisions. Right. The farmer knows that what he does on his land affects the fisherman two thousand miles downstream. Mm-hmm. Oh wow, absolutely! I was also thinking there could be a line drawn between like being active participant rather than like. You know, I could sit here in this shipping container and say, I'm an environmentalist. But a steward, it seems more like you, this is what you do. And it's a. Uh, Absolutely. You know, and these, you know, they're, I mean, I gained, every day I worked on this book, I gained deeper respect for mm-hmm. them, partly because you realize how hard it is to have some of those conversations across often decades of, you know, of battle, like up in the. I mean, and generations of family history, perhaps, right. and, and you know, heritage. And- so I have that, that deep respect, but also every day their livelihood is on the line. I mean, when this farmer goes out there and experiments with cover crops and with no tilling and with, you know, big investments in new equipment and trying things on the land that he's not sure how it's going to work, but he's doing it because he's convinced it is going to restore the, the microbial ecology in the soil mm-hmm. and the stability of the soil. That's his family's income that he's putting on the mm-hmm. line every single month. Wow. And that's, you know, that's really brave. Yeah. I mean, I, I work for an environmental organization, but my family's <laughs> livelihood isn't on the line every single day. When you try day. something different, yeah. Right. Wow. Um, well, let's talk more about the challenges right after a quick little commercial break. Thanks, Miriam. Music for this commercial break is brought to you by King of Kings, and this track is called Knife Show. Hi, this is Peter Kim, the executive director of MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. 
We're a nonprofit founded by Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues here on the Heritage Radio Network. And we want to take people on a learning adventure through the world of food. We just opened MoFad Lab, our gallery space at 62 Bayard Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where we are currently showing flavor, making it and faking it. Flavor features some very cool sensory interaction. Flavor tablets deliver tastings of vanilla and umami. And the Willy Wonka-inspired smell synth lets you compose over half a million different flavors. So come on by and visit MoFad Lab. We're open five days a week, and tickets are $5 for kids and $10 for adults. Learn more about the Museum of Food and Drink at mofad.org. All right, we're back chatting with Miriam Horn, the author of Rancher, Farmer, Fisherman. Thanks again for joining us here. Uh, the subtitle is also Conservation Heroes of the American Heartland. And um, Miriam, if you don't mind, I thought I would read a little passage from the book that I think it's, it really summarizes sort of um, the heart, if you will. I would love that. A little bit. Um, do, 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 do. Okay, so we're talking about how... <laughs> How little represented they are in the population, but the enormous impact that they have, um, farmers, ranchers, and fishermen, that is, on the area of land. And you write, as these productive landscapes grow increasingly precarious, or overgrazed, overtilled, overfished, threatened by invasive species, development, ill-conceived fears of engineering, and extreme weather, it is the families who run the tractors and barges and fishing boats who are stepping up to save them. Theirs are the most consequential efforts to restore America's grasslands, wildlife, soils, rivers, wetlands, and fisheries, the vast, rich bounty that shaped our national character and sustains our way of life. I just have to say that this is just a really beautiful read, too. And, uh, you know, I love that you focus on, you know, you really get to know each of the characters. Uh, Did you have fun writing this, by the way? Oh, I had so much fun. I mean, the... One of the really fun aspects of it was the food I got to eat because oh, it is really a book yeah. about food. And, mm-hmm. you know, in each landscape, um, I had a, a meal that really stood out. I mean, with the cowboy, it was being 75 miles in the Bob Marshall wilderness. We'd gone in on horseback with mules and he'd brought in a prime rib from one of his own cattle and cut the steaks and grilled them oh. for us right there and you know That's... deep in the wilderness with wolves howling across the river that was <laughs> that was awesome in Kansas it was the the harvest meal the dinner that you have out in the field during wheat harvest cuz they can't really afford to stop so pe- they bring this feast out into this ripe golden wheat field and it's just beautiful beyond oh belief and um, on the towboat, it was kind of crazy. I mean, they eat like, you know, grits and pork chops, and it's men that are out there for a month at a time. But this sounds but, like a fantasy <clears throat> that you're like totally qualifying these like illusions that we have about the idyllic farming. And uh, oh, it was re- yeah. wonderful. I mean, the, my favorite meal of all was actually flying out in a seaplane to one of the shrimping boats in the Gulf and having they're all uh, pretty much all Vietnamese and Cambodian, so they bring along with them. The mints and basils oh. and hot sauce and pork belly and noodles and we just rolled up these shrimp wraps wow. right there on the boat. It was oh my pretty. gosh! They so I had well. a great time. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and that's great that everyone was so warm and welcoming. Um, you know, and, and were they happy that you were sharing their their stories? Um, you or, know, a few of them. It took a while before they. I mean, here I yeah, I live I in New imagine. York. I'm an environmentalist. It's you know they, so. Um, the, the farmer in particular was leery of, of 
opening up their family to me and that but then as time went by the degree of openness I mean that was really one of the most moving things for me was that there were no topics off limits you know there's no dogma there was no sanctimony there was no chip Mm -hmm. on their shoulder I could ask any question I wanted I could challenge anything the farmer I pushed hard on the farmer and his use of neonicotinoid pesticides. Ah. And he ended up changing his practices in mm-hmm. the course of my working on the book. I mean, the, the, wow. the, in, the, the true, honest search that each one is on to keep being better and to weigh all the trade-offs of every mm-hmm. decision, was it was really, really impressive to me. Wow. So what do you think are the, like, the biggest challenges, um, I, I guess, with along with the warming weather and um, you know different changes in you know pH of the waters for instance um, how how are we I guess what can we do as readers like what do you hope that um, readers will take will take away from this book in order to address challenges I guess I would like really I hope that people will begin to develop a more complicated view of what constitutes sustainability in food I think that we've you know, we've counted, we've looked at just a, f- a very few things. We focus mostly on chemicals because of the organic certification. Organic, but, yeah. But, you know, really the mo- from, a, from a big scale sustainability question, the most important questions are going to be things like how healthy the microbes in the soil are, how much carbon is stored in the soil, whether grasslands are, are kept grasslands and, you know, grazing animals are really critical to keeping grasslands intact mm-hmm. because the only other way to feed people on them is to convert them into croplands and then you lose a critical ecosystem that's one of the most endangered ecosystems on earth. Mm-hmm. So recognizing the role of grazing animals, recognizing that the, the most important metrics for sustainable food probably have less to do with chemicals and more to do with how much carbon does this farmer okay. have in their soil and mm-hmm. how undisturbed is their soil and how biodiverse how much biodiversity are they sustaining not only in their cropping and their cover crops but most critically in the microbial mm-hmm. ec- ecology underground and so there you know whole foods is trying to come up with certifications that recognize some of that. Even Walmart is actually a driver in... Can you imagine a no-till label? Or a, it would uh, be fantastic. Yeah. It's really <laughs> tricky because the you know wheat is a, goes into these silos and then it, you know wheat from all over gets mixed together in the supply chain is tricky, but Walmart is really, has asked Walmart's the biggest grocer in the country in the world, I think, in the yeah. country certainly and it has asked its food suppliers like Kellogg's to give preferential treatment to grain growers like Justin who are mm-hmm. keeping much more carbon trapped in the soil and out of the atmosphere. So people are really working hard to try to get these more meaningful metrics out there that can really guide a consumer to eating in a way that is sustainable. Wow. And now that you've written this book and um, there's a little bit of time in um, after you know meeting some of these folks, how are they doing with them? So for the for instance, the the Knopf family farm, who switched over to no-till farming. Um, how is that going? And, uh, you know, any follow-ups? That- I mean, it's, you know, it has given them... I mean, one of Justin's primary motivations is to be resilient as the weather gets more extreme. So yeah. it's not only that they're dealing with hotter temperatures and deeper droughts. They know that there's going to be more challenges, yeah. And they're also, you know, when the drought breaks, it breaks in these torrential storms that then you've had wind erosion during the drought, and then you get this terrible water erosion once the rains start because they come down in these 
you know, much, much harder storms than they used to have. And there's all kinds of weeds and pests that are moving in that were never there before, and they're moving because of climate change. So his main, one of his primary motivations for no-tilling and using cover crops and more intense rotations is to be resilient to climate change. And mm-hmm. it's really paying off. His, the, if you look at the yields, the wheat yields in central Kansas through this last five or ten years where the weather has grown more extreme, they've been all over the map. And Justin's have stayed high and steady all the way through. It really also pays well, off from an economic point of view. Right, right. And, and with the scale that they're working at, I think that's a great inspirational model, hopefully, that maybe we'll see more of. Yeah, I mean, that's, again, that's it's the idea. If you, yeah, you have to do it at that mm-hmm. scale if you really mm-hmm. want to get the, the scale changes that we need. Fantastic. And tell us, we didn't really talk too much about the, um, you know, the the <laughs> seafood um, replenishment um, uh, activities that um, some of your uh, you're you're covering with the uh, invasive species that are you know uh, threatening the red snapper. And, uh, yeah, just tell us a little bit about what that family has been doing to recover these stocks in their community, in well, their fishery. So, so there, uh, there are two different fishing communities that I write about, mm-hmm. and the, um, the Vietnamese community fishes in the coastal waters, and they are really dependent on the estuaries, on the wetlands mm-hmm. that the Mississippi River built, and that for thousands of years the Mississippi would continue to rebuild. It would keep re- replenishing the, the sediments to keep those wetlands alive. When we re-engineered the Mississippi River to prevent flooding, we cut off that supply of nutrients. So the wetlands in Louisiana are vanishing. We've lost 2,000 square miles of wetlands. And if you lose those wetlands, you lose the nursery for all of the shellfish, all of the coastal fish, and for the deep water fish. Most of the fish in the Gulf of Mexico depend on those wetlands at some point in their life in their life cycle. So one of the really critical things is 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 restoring the Mississippi's land building function. Um, right. and that so that's one of the things that they're deeply involved mm-hmm. in is making sure that the Mississippi can again rebuild those wetlands. And then the other is shifting really in the Gulf, in the deep waters, shifting to a, a policy that uh, that gives the fishermen a secure stake in the fishery. Um, they give, it gives them a right to catch a certain percentage of the mm-hmm. sustainable catch. And that really changes everything. It gets you away from this destructive race mm-hmm. to, and, and allows fishermen to really be very conscientious in the way they fish. It means they bring in fresh fish every day of the year Absolutely. instead of in this couple-week season. And it makes them real advocates of things like marine protected areas because it regrows the stocks that You're they have a secure... Yeah. Exactly. exactly. I, I think, yeah, because I bring this up because I think that, you know, these are really specific, you know, places and peoples and challenges, but I think that... Do you think that these can be applied and um, or used to inspire many areas for their conservation efforts? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, that fishery reform mm-hmm. in the Gulf yeah. is now, in most fisheries in the United States, are rebounding because they have, they have actually made that reform. Right. These are these guys are not outliers. I wasn't looking for the rare, mm-hmm. singular the red herring. Yeah, yeah. These guys are. I mean, I went to a conference in Central Kansas called the No Till on the Plains Conference that had two thousand large scale farmers from all over the heartland who are all no tilling and are mm-hmm. all introducing this biodiversity. So they not only can be an inspiration; they are, you know, representative of a very vast and growing and growing movement. movement. That's really inspiring. Um, well, I'm really ins- ins- 
<laughs> I'm really excited for your next projects. Um, do you know if you're you're going to be ex- what you're going to be exploring next? Or well, this book is actually being made into a movie, so I'm I'm wow. very involved with that. It will air um, a documentary style a movie. Documentary, okay. yeah, which will air on the Discovery Channel next That's summer. Fantastic. So they've basically. I mean, I've been working with them. They've retraced the journey and and that so that you'll everyone will get to meet these. These families and we'll in get person. to see your shrimp rolls. Yes, on the boat. Yes. Nice. Yes. I can't um, wait for that. So I'm pretty. That's pretty much carrying me through the the foreseeable okay. future. Fantastic. That, well, work. really looking forward to that. Um, and I guess that's about all the time we have for today. But thank you again so much for sharing this journey. And I guess we'll see more of it soon. And Absolutely. When, when do when do you know if that when that will be released? The, the, the plan, you know, disc, it's the Discovery Channel will air it around the world probably in June or July of 2017. Okay, it's coming up. So we'll look forward to Rancher Farmer Fisherman on the big screen. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Miriam. Thank you. And thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. So good inside